the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Good morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live inside the Beltway. Back, I want to thank Dwayne for sitting in for me yesterday. Morgan Ortega is for sitting in for me on Wednesday. That will be back and forth uh for preparation for the debate on November 8th, which Salem is co-hosting with NBC News, doing my debate prep up in New York. And so I go back and forth and looking forward to working with Lester and Kristen on this debate. I hope you'll be watching on November the 8th. The news this morning, the main killer is still at large and details about the investigation are sparse and Maine is spooked. Uh, I will come back to this because it is rather shocking. Maine may be the safest place I've ever lived uh, in terms of you just you aren't aware of threats or violent crime. It might have the lowest violent crime rate of the 50 states. And that killer, Mr. Card, uh, is got skills. He also has what apparently is a schizophrenic break. Lester was in Maine yesterday, interviewed um, someone in Lewiston who said that The family is also very much into guns, but that Robert Card had begun wearing powerful hearing aids because he was hearing things like people bashing him specifically with regards to the bowling alley and the and the bar in which he killed the 18 people and wounded 13 more. Uh, So this is a schizophrenic break. Uh, The New York Times carries a story. No, it's the Washington Post. Maine's loose gun laws come under scrutiny after deadly shootings. I think we will find out that he purchased his guns legally. And I think we will find out that the Army did not tell anyone after they had him hospitalized for two weeks at West Point this summer. And I think we will try and figure out what to learn from this, as with every mass killing. Uh, I was talking on the train back to D.C. last night that I have some hope that eventually A.I., will be able to uh, not go full minority report, but be able to ID people who have some sort of schizophrenic break, some sort of mental breakdown, and are also in the possession of federally purchased and background cleared weapons. That should be uh, a signal to local law enforcement, but there are privacy issues, et cetera. Let me go to the war. The United States is in this war, whether or not we declare it, whether or not how much we are into it. Uh, last night, The United States retaliated against Iran via airstrikes in Syria on Iranian troops and the IRGC operating there. Uh, The amount and intensity of those strikes has not been released, and it will be. They are narrowly tailored strikes in self-defense, said Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. They do not constitute a shift in our approach to the Israel-Hamas conflict. I don't know how they expect to obtain deterrence this way. But they do, and I don't think it will work. Um, There were two missile attacks on a city in Egypt, Taba, Egypt, near the border with Israel. 
They were believed to be, according to the Times of Israel, missiles or drones from Yemen that fell short of their intended target in Israel. Egypt has reserved the right to strike back. The IDF killed five Hamas commanders yesterday. Uh, The defense minister, Gallant, said Israel will win this war in the next 75 years, depend upon it. They are preparing a full-scale incursion. There was another limited incursion into Gaza last night. As part of the uh, Dejara Tufa Battalion uh, attack on it, it's part of the Hamas Gaza City Brigade. Hamas has thirty thousand members, so it's going to take. It's going to be a long war. It's going to be a very long war, and I think people need to be prepared for that. That's why Israel. I remember after nine eleven, in ten seven, is Israel's nine eleven, only more severe. The impatience with which the American people waited for a response to what we knew was Al-Qaeda, and we knew Al-Qaeda was being hidden by the Taliban, and we gave the Taliban notice. I can't remember how long it was that W gave them to respond, and then they didn't respond, and then our special operators moved in with the Northern Alliance, but it was a very long time, in real time, for the response. Now, we had presidential candidates out last night, and I want to make sure we get to this today. Governor DeSantis on with Caitlin Collins uh, last night, talking about the main shooter, Cut number 10. I want to have more uh, uh, facilities for involuntary commitment. I think that we used to do higher levels of involuntary commitment. The pendulum swung a lot to the other direction. I'm not saying it needs to go all the way back where it was, but I do think that we need to recognize that there are some people whose behavior is a danger to community and danger to society that right now are getting put back on the street. Uh, and I'd want there to be a mechanism to, to do that, I think, realistically, you have to have the resources in place and the facilities in place to do that. So instead of taking someone's guns away, you think putting someone in an institution is is the solution to what we saw happen in Maine. Is that right? If he was institutionalized, he would not have been able to commit this this offense 100 percent. I mean, that's that goes without saying. Um, if somebody's back on the street, then they can always uh, hurt somebody. You and it doesn't about- mean that you just have you know, it's not like like be what you take one firearm like they can't get others or they can't use other things to be able to harm people when people are this mean they can do a lot of damage especially someone like that that has military training yeah i just think some people would raise questions about you know you're talking about his rights if you take guns away but if he's being institutionalized but i want to talk about but that but there's a process for that too i'm not saying you don't have a process for that i'm not saying you just snap your finger and do that we we have a long history well we have had a long history in this country of handling mental health in different ways i think now we've gone a little bit more liberal i think you see that uh, affecting a lot of problems that we have in society. And so, but that, if he had been involuntarily committed, then clearly this would not have happened. You can't say that with anything else. Well, I think people would say, is that the solution or is it is it something with restricting gun ownership? But I want to talk about Israel because- But you can't to, though, if, if you have been adjudicated mentally, you are not able in this country to I purchase that a is firearm. The federal, yes. That is the federal law. Is there any gun restriction that you would sign into place if you were president, any law restricting gun ownership? Restricting Second Amendment rights. I'm going to uphold the Constitution. That is Governor DeSantis last night. He was also asked about former President Trump. Cut number nine. Would you endorse him if he is the nominee? Well, I've already said that I signed the pledge. I'm supporting yeah, the Republican do you, nominee. Do you think it's real? Well, for me, it is. I mean, I think when when you sign something, I know some people don't, don't do that. But when I agreed to participate in the debates, I knew what that meant. I knew whoever comes out of that process. But here's the thing. I'm not just going to take my ball and go home. I'm going to do follow the process, respect the people's will. I think ultimately, you know, they'll make the judgment that, that I'm the best foot forward. And I think we'll get it done. 
But look, at the end of the day, um, I'm not going to just cry in the corner. I mean, I think Biden needs to be defeated, and I think a Republican needs to do it. I've also seen, uh, I've got a couple more DeSantis clips. I want to play Vivek, though, with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. I'm with Martha McCollum yesterday on Aid to Israel, cut number 13. And you're also saying no more money for Israel. You said, you said, no, that's it. Without, no money. Without a clear plan. So no money for Israel. I would say that without a clear, without a clear plan or defined objective. Okay, I I think he's saying no money for Israel, which is pretty extraordinary. We'll follow up on that. Cut number 14, uh, Martha McCollum with Vivek. It would be your priority to get Americans out. And and I'm saying, you know, you could step into office tomorrow and this could be the situation. How would you get them out? What would you do? So, look, we have to look at whatever it takes to be able to negotiate the exit of those hostages. I think that there is a reasonable path. Hamas is sending a signal. I don't think that Hamas is a trustworthy group, but they have released at least two hostages at a time. Use that same pattern to be able to get more out against the backdrop of knowing that the U.S. will not engage militarily here. To the contrary, if you hit the U.S. targets, you're going to have consequences to pay. Cut number 15, he talks about American troops in Iraq and Syria. Cut number 15. And I also think this should be part of a broader exit from Syria and Iraq accordingly. Well, that, I'm Against sure that, you know, that, news that you wanted to pull out of all home. these places would be music to the Iranian leadership's ears, because that's what they want. They want America to be out of the region. Well, look, and you're also saying no more money for Israel. Mistakes, you said you said no. That's it. Without no money. Without a clear plan. Uh, I got to say, um, both Martha and Caitlin are argumentative. I, I don't believe in that. I believe in asking questions and letting the candidates explain to people what they believe and to not rush it so that we don't we don't end up with the crosstalk. Crosstalk drives me crazy. I do want to welcome back Americans for Prosperity as a sponsor of our show. I'm I'm so happy that they are back. They are of course maybe the leading proponent of free market solutions to the problems that ail us, and you can go to Americans for prosperity.org. The annual shutdown circus is upon us. AFP has a lot of thoughts about that. They do not want an enormous con- continuing resolution. They want regular order on the appropriations bill. Not sure that new Speaker Johnson is going to have the time to do that, but they could do a temporary uh, CR. But AFP wants Congress to debate the funding bills and to pass them on the merits. Find out more about that. Head to AmericansForProsperity.org, AmericansForProsperity.org. They are the leading voice for free market solutions to America's many problems. It's deficit, it's debt, it's inflation, almost everything AFP believes market forces improve, if not solve. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned, but head over to AmericansForProsperity.org, and I'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400.
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Martin Scorsese has a new movie out, and of course that means Sonny Bunch is here to talk about it. It's a break, Sonny, from the grim news of the last three weeks. I'm glad you can join me. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, Hugh. I don't know that this is going to be much of a break from the grimness, uh, Killers of Flower Moon. Um, yeah. are you, are you, did you read uh, the David Grand book on which this is based? No, I did not. So the, the David Grand book is, is really good. I, I recommend it to everyone uh, who asks. It's, uh, it's, basically, it's pretty short. It's, it's basically about the formation of the FBI. There were a series of murders of Osage Indians in Oklahoma. And nobody could figure out what was going on, how it was happening, who was doing it. Uh, so the 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 Osage went to Calvin Coolidge and uh, asked, "Hey, can we can we have some help? We got we need to get some some people out here. Our our law enforcement isn't doing anything to stop this." And they sent somebody out, and over the over the course of some time, they figured out that what was happening was um, folks were marrying into Osage families, and then. Uh, eliminating all of the Osage members of the family so they could inherit the oil rights that the Osage had. The Osage were on uh, Oklahoma oil land. They, had, they were the richest people per capita in the world uh, at that point in history because they, they had found so much oil so quickly. Um, and it's a, wow. it's a really interesting story. It's a really interesting story. And uh, one, of, one of the problems with Killers of the Flower Moon, which I admire a lot, I think it's an interesting movie and i think martin scorsese is doing a lot of admirable things in it but one one issue with it is that it is three and a half hours long and that story that story from the book the formation of the fbi and discovering how and why this was happening is really the only last hour of uh the movie the rest of it the first two and a half hours or so is what happened before that it was all the murders it's we sit we sit there in osage county oklahoma with ernest burkhardt who's played by leonardo dicaprio uh, who comes back from World War One uh, and is falls in with his, uh, you know, uh, philanthropist slash gangster. I think you could describe him in the Scorsese mold. Uh, Uncle King Hale, who's played by Robert De Niro. Uh, Hale sets Burkhardt up with one of these Osage families. He marries uh, Molly Burkhardt, who's played by Lily Gladstone in the movie. Um, and uh, all around Molly, her family starts dying. Her, we we see people, but and this is this is the structural problem of the film is that we see all these people die and we see how they die. There's no real mystery to it. We see the murders, we see the uh, the the suicides that aren't really suicides. You know, we see the wasting diseases that are caused by poisoning. Um, it's uh, it, it it lacks suspense in a very real way, and that you know look. Movies, movies need suspense. Um, that said, uh, the the what Scorsese is going for here is uh, a very specific thing, and this is why the movie does earn its length. I think from an artistic point of view, I, I will say artistically it's a success. I, I don't know how great a success it will be with audiences uh, from this point of view, but I do think artistically it works. Is it as long? Like, the Aviator was pretty long. Uh, Gangs of New York, my favorite Scorsese movie, pretty long. Uh, yeah. Does he normally go three and a half hours? He's. I mean, he has gotten he has gotten long. His movies have stretched over the years. I think. I mean, uh, you know, Casino, one of my favorites, is three hours long. Uh, the Gangs of New York, I think, is three hours, ten minutes, something like that. Uh, the Aviator was about three hours. Yeah. Um, the Irishman, of course, was uh, about this length, about three and a half hours. 
Uh, so, you know, it, look, he, he, he does like to go to go long on these kind of late stage movies. Silence. I don't know if you saw Silence. Oh, I love Silence. But then again, I'm yeah. Catholic and it's Jap- I, I know a little bit about yeah. Japan and been there. So I, I, I there's very few I don't like. You know, I'm not a big Goodfellas uh, fan, but it, it's a there, but this one I'm intrigued by because it does strike me as a little bit of Gangs of New York in terms of the sinister nature of the preview. And that's all I've seen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think that's that's a good comp. The the big problem with this movie is that it doesn't have a Daniel Day Lewis style figure or a. Um, uh, it, it's not it's not like I see. I prefer Goodfellas and Casino uh, to Silence and The Irishman um, because I I kind of like that frenetic style of filmmaking. This is much more staid, much more subdued. Um, and what what Scorsese is trying to do here is you know the the, the reason the movie is so long and the reason it kind of has to be to succeed at what he's trying to get at is he's, he's, he's examining the ways in which, you know, a community becomes acclimated to a, a kind of obvious wickedness, right? When they're, when they're surrounded by it, when they are benefiting from it, um, when, when that evil kind of originates from people they admire uh, and hold to be, you know, better than them, right? That's why, uh, you know, it's, it's important that King Hale is often shown doing philanthropic works. You know, he's, he's giving, uh, he's building, you know, buildings and he's building schools and he's building hospitals. Um, but he's also, you know, uh, murdering people for the insurance money. I mean, there's one again, when I what, what, one of the things that really jumps out at this movie is how how dumb and blatant so many of these plots were that they got away with. For instance, uh, King Hale takes out a twenty five thousand dollar insurance policy on a uh, on a depressed uh, Native American fellow. And, uh, you know, about 30 minutes later in the movie ends up uh, having paying somebody to shoot him uh, as a, you know, to, to make it look like a suicide. Um, and uh, it, it, it's so obvious what is happening here. It's so it's so clear and and, you know, ridiculous that he was able to get away with it for so long. But that's why. go back to the book. Was it was it clear and ridiculous in the book? I mean, movies have to be movies for a reason, but I'm curious about the the actual story beneath the movie. Did it did, did it take like FBI skills? There was no no metric, right? Because it's the first time it exists. But was it hard to solve? I think it was. I think it was harder. Yes, it was hard for the FBI to solve because the FBI, you know, didn't really know what was going on. All they knew that there was that there were a bunch of dead people. They weren't all obviously murders. You know, again, some were various wasting diseases, uh, some were, some were claiming to be suicides. Uh, you know, the, the native American population in America was, uh, not, not well respected, uh, at that point in history. And a lot of, a lot of people dismissed them as, you know, alcoholics and, and depressives. And, uh, it was like, well, you know, of course they died young. That's, that's just what happens with those people. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting, I, again, I, the book is really, really good. Uh, and I, I feel like folks, Folks should see the movie, but they should also read the book to to, to kind of get a uh, a better sense of what uh, what what prompted it. Tell me a little bit about De Niro in this movie, because I've been watching his career sag as he gets older. And it's inevitable, right, as you get older, unless you get scripts that are exactly tailored for a man your age, they will always sort of just fade away. Does, yeah, is, well, he, I mean, is this a strong performance? I think, yeah, he's very, he's very, very good in this. Uh, it, it's funny, you know, he has taken about 30 paycheck jobs over the last, you know, three years. Exactly. Um, but he, he, he's worked with Martin Scorsese twice over that same stretch of, of time. And they're both, you know, top tier performances. They both easily 
if he is not nominated for a, a best supporting actor for this for this role, I would be very surprised. I'll is DiCaprio way. at the top of his game? You know, Di- DiCaprio. <laughs> excuse me, sorry. Uh, DiCaprio is okay in this. I, I'm not. I'm not. I wasn't wild by him. I prefer his work in uh, Wolf of Wall Street or Shutter Island or The Departed. If we're if we're talking uh, uh, Scorsese movies, he's been in. Uh, I like Aviator. I thought Aviator was he's, fine. He's, yeah, he's he's great and he's great in the Aviator. Um, in this movie, it's it's interesting. He doesn't often play this sort of role, but he's playing a guy I can only describe as as a complete goober. I mean, he's just a he's just a complete uh, idiot. It, there's a Coen Brothers sensibility to a lot of this film. Oh. Um, in that in that the the criminal enterprises are so dumb and the people committing them are so stupid that there's almost a very black comedy to the things that they are getting away with and trying to get away with. Um, and he is, he is kind of exhibit number one in this, you know, he's got, he, he doesn't, he doesn't speak very well. He's got kind of bad teeth. He's, you know, he's charming ish in his own way, but not, uh, not in the, the handsome pretty boy way that you often expect from uh, DiCaprio. But the and then Matt Captain Damon is, shows up, right? Is Matt Damon, you know, J. Edgar <laughs> Hoover? Uh, Meth Damon. That's Jesse Plemons. Uh, oh, that's uh, it's it's the guy who looks like Matt Damon, who was on uh, Breaking Bad. Well, you he see, I like didn't Matt even Damon, know that. So. See, yeah, I know. Yeah, no, there was a, there was a running joke for a while. People were calling him Meth Damon because he looks so much like <laughs> Matt Damon. <laughs> I didn't and know he that was, he was one of the bad guys on uh, um, Breaking Bad. So uh, no, Jesse Plemons shows up. He's he's playing the the FBI, the first FBI agent, you know, who shows up and with the hat at the door. Yeah, he's so good. He's he's very good in this movie. Um, and and the the supporting cast is great. Uh, you know, Brendan Fraser has a couple scenes. He's very Brendan good in Fraser's it. in this. He, he's very briefly in it uh, as a as a lawyer, uh, and he's he's very good. Uh, John Lithgow was also in the courtroom scenes as a lawyer, and the the supporting cast of the the villains is really great too. It's a bunch of names you wouldn't know. I won't even uh, recite them here, but the the, the it's way, a Wes the Anderson way. version of Martin Scorsese. Everybody shows up. <laughs> well. It's funny you say that because there were some people who describe uh, the coda at the end of the film, um, which uh, so, you know, you know, at the end of the of films like this, a lot of the times they, they have photos of the real people. Yes. And, and title cards saying, like, this is what happened, you know, and yes. this is this is. So instead of doing that, Martin Scorsese stages essentially a uh, a live radio play, you know, the live radio plays. Oh, yes. You, you oh, have, yes. You have guys talking and narrating and people would come in and talk parts and there would be guys in the background, you know, banging on cans and, and rubbing, you know, um, rubbing Fo- paper Fo- together. To, Foley artists, is that what they're called? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so instead of having the title cards, he does that. And at the very end of the film, and it is, it is very Wes Anderson in that there's a lot of like very precisely framed shots of people showing up and speaking in clipped accents and very mannered sort of way. And then at the very, very end of the film, uh, Martin Scorsese comes up. Uh, Martin Scorsese, he's playing, a, you know, he's playing a narrator on this, on this radio show, but he essentially looks into the camera and says, I do not approve of the things that we have seen in this movie. He doesn't actually say this, but he says it in so many words. And I really can't help but feel that this is his reaction to having spent so many years having to tell people over and over again, I don't approve of the gangsters in Goodfellas or Mean Streets or, uh, you know, Casino or The Departed. Like I depiction does not equal endorsement. The problem with depiction is that you can only show things and in movies. And it's very it's very funny in, in its own way. You have to again. This is not. So he's not denouncing the Marvel universe at the end like he always does. <laughs> he 
comes out and he says, uh, you know, Captain America could not have solved this crime. Because Captain ah. America is a book for children. Ah. Uh, so, you know, that's, it, it, was really, it was a really shocking moment. I, I couldn't quite believe it. Um, but I, I really. Well, Sonny, I, I'm, I, I'm, I, you I'm sold me. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, I would go anyway. Sonny Bunch on X, the site formerly known as Twitter. And go to uh, Across the Movie Aisle is his podcast, as well as the Bulwark goes to the movies. Thank you, Sonny Bunch. Be right back with more News America updates from Israel and from Maine. Stay tuned on When the government used emergency edicts during COVID to restrict the gathering and worship of churches, three pastors facing the risk of imprisonment, unlimited fines, and their own churches being ripped apart, took a courageous stand and reopened their doors in the face of a world that chose to comply. The Essential Church is a feature-length documentary that explores the struggle between the church and government throughout history. This fascinating story uncovers those who've sacrificed their lives throughout history for what they truly believe in. Rediscover why the church is essential and how we prove that this stand remains true from a scientific, legal, and most importantly, biblical perspective. This is not your typical movie. It'll change your life. You need to see this movie with your friends and family. The Essential Church is streaming today exclusively at SalemNow.com. That's Essential Church, streaming at SalemNow.com. Glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. There's so much news, and all of it is grim. The main killer is still at large. Israel struck again in Gaza last night to prepare for the ground invasion. Anti-Semitism has blossomed all over the United States, like the worst kind of weed you could possibly have. It's stunning, actually. And this just in, and I want to talk about it with my guest, Ben Dominich, editor-at-large of The Spectator, Fox News contributor. Good morning, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. A lot to talk about this week, Hugh. Uh, yeah. I'm curious what you want to put first. I want to put first what came in in Ellis Items this morning. President Joe Biden's job approval rating among Democrats has tumbled 11 percentage points in the past month to 75 percent, the worst reading of his presidency from his own party. This drop has pushed his overall approval rating down four points to 37 percent, matching his personal low. At the same time, Biden's approval rating among independents has declined four points to 35 percent, while Republican rating remains unchanged at five percent. This is Gallup and they they can be trusted. So Mm -hmm. what? What in the world accounts for that, Ben Dominich? Well, I think it's a number of things, but I think what's really weighing on people is that uh, Joe Biden himself really just does not seem up to the challenges of the moment. And I think that people have, have really lost faith in him on so many different counts. You know, really, you know, we talk about, you know, typically in politics, as you know, the idea that foreign policy is not a decisive matter uh, when it comes to the direction that the country has, that people, you know, basically are able to separate mentally foreign affairs from domestic. I don't think that that's true in the context of this presidency. I think that how much he has bungled everything over the past two years, really, when it comes to foreign policy, has started to really weigh down among Democrats. And I think that there's another aspect of this, too, that is going on, which is that the the Democrats themselves, they want to have some hope going into the next election here. They want to have some some feeling other than people are just going to vote for our guy because they hate Donald Trump or they don't trust him or they, they think he's a criminal or whatever. And, and they don't really have that. They don't have that on any real score. And I think that you know, a perfect example this week was this ridiculous foreign affairs piece by Jake Sullivan. Oh, uh, that, goodness. That went to press before, you know, everything that went down on October 7th and since. And it just shows you how much this administration 
uh, is out of touch because all the different things that are said in there, they allowed him to go back. And by the way, they never should have done this, allowed him to go back and take it out, uh, take out and edit a bunch of different things before it went up online. And then people sort of went back and said, wait a minute, the piece that they ran was different than what he was saying before. So I think that one of the things that we have to keep in mind is this this president always came in, you know, as with the uh, with the frame that you could trust him on foreign policy. And I think that for a lot of, of Democrats, that's just been apparently not the case. And I also think, frankly, that the, that the party is embarrassed uh, by what they see happening on campuses across the country. Um, and as much as, you know, uh, Republicans and independents uh, and obviously people who uh, favor and support Israel across the political spectrum are angered by what they see. I think that there was a feeling that Joe Biden was going to be a figure who could keep the squad in in uh, in heel, that it was going to be uh, something where that aspect of the Democratic Party was going to be pressed, in, pressed against, pressed down against. And the Republican chaos, as much as it you know does uh, embarrass the, uh, the, the party and has been something that you know, is a problem. It's much more condensed in the in the way that people feel about it on a day to day basis. The average person just doesn't feel that uh, congressional sort of challenge. I think uh, the way that they look around the, the, at the state of things, the state of affairs in the world, and basically say America is going in the wrong direction. Our allies are going in the wrong direction. Joe Biden is nowhere to be found, and I just don't have any confidence in him anymore. I think that's that combination of factors is weighing him down. And, and I think maybe he lost some of his hard left support in the Democratic Party because he went to Israel when they, of course, don't believe in Israel. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, Ben, about the anti-Semitism on college. I am shocked by this. All right. I expected a couple of of dumb college kids to do a few dumb things in the aftermath because they don't understand what happened on 10-7. Mm-hmm. But this is this is not a few college kids. This is. Dozens of campuses and hundreds of demonstrations and much vile anti-Semitism from Cooper Union to Tulane to UCLA. How widespread is this rot? This has been the great reveal, right? This is a failure of campuses across the country and an indictment of K through 12 education that they have not got any moral lens through which to view the massacre of 10-7. Well, I think for one, this is an indictment, obviously, of what these people are being are being taught. That's obvious. But but I think that there's more something more going on here. And namely, I would say that, you know, the the people should not underestimate the degree to which uh, American youth have been propagandized to about the nature of Israel by social media and TikTok in particular. Some of the things that are that have been shown there and that have gone viral there uh, are really just absolutely abhorrent. And I think that, you know, we we kind of lose perspective on some of this. You know how Hugh, we had this whole attitude, this faction of people about a decade ago who were, you know, they were very much down on the idea that like, oh, there's something newly wrong with these uh, these woke kids on campus. And, and it's, oh, it's just a, a conservative conspiracy that these people are are different. And, and then, of course, that turned out not to be true. Those kids graduated. They went into the boardrooms and into the comms departments of corporations across America. And their influence and their views were applied there in ways that uh, conservatives said, look, you know, we were right. These kids are fundamentally different. They've been taught something fundamentally different. Uh, and this is not just an outburst that you normally see uh, from college campuses, as we've seen historically. And I think that in this case, uh, what we are really learning is that it is much more widespread and much more effective in terms of the, the propagandization against Israel that has been taking place on that level. And I'll say one more aspect of this. Israel has not done itself favors in this by 
I think, uh, kind of missing this. They've uh, focused on kind of the top-down game of influencing, you know, politicians and political leaders, which traditionally is something that has, has you know, worked uh, to a degree for them. I think that they, they really sort of missed, uh, and a lot of their supporters missed, how much the youth was being captured by this. And I will say, even on the right, the right has tolerated a lot of, of people who have dabbled in this space uh, simply because I think They've been able to to pervert the anti-Middle East war message uh, in a way that is both historically inaccurate uh, and needed response. Uh, but a lot of people on the right, frankly, they just didn't focus on that. They, their focus has been more on the political, uh, which is meaningful, does matter. But I think that the propaganda that has taken over the youth mindset here is extremely dangerous and requires a, an organized pushback uh, in order to prevent them being captured by what is essentially another branch of the decolonization tree. I, I think you're right. I think Chris Rufo has spotted this, and Chris Rufo yes. has written about it, and it is everywhere, and it's growing like kudzu. I do need, Ben, your comments on another massacre, this one in Maine, about 45 minutes from where I spend you know, four or five months a summer. My brother-in-law lives up there, family up there. It's shocking because Maine is probably the least violent place I've lived in my 67 years. And the, the, the everybody's armed as well, right? Their guns, their, their per capita gun is probably up there with Montana. And it happened. Does it change the debate at all? You know, I, I, I don't think that it does. I do think that this is one situation where, uh, you know, you, have, you always learn more about the different flags that could have been there for someone within our communities. And one thing that I definitely think is true you and, and it has fueled some of the aspects of these shootings in recent years is that the breakdown of community, the breakdown of, of awareness of what's going on in people's lives does have an impact. Uh, and whether that's shown in the form of addiction or of, of mental health uh, or whether it happens in a violent outburst of, of uh, you know, rage and villainy uh, that leads to the deaths of people, uh, it, it does have this sort of a, a quality of uh, an ability to escape the attention of communities. And that's something that is, you know, a long-running concern among many of us, you know, on, on the right that we've raised this over the years as, as communities have break down and broken down and institutions have failed, uh, particularly local churches and communities that should, should have been able to flag things like this in the past. So, look, I, I think that's all you can really say is, is that evil people have the capacity to do extreme amounts of damage. Uh, and yet we, we also need to be able to have the freedoms to own these kind of types of weapons because they not just for self-defense, but frankly, you know, I think that, you know, when we look historically, America has had, you know, great opportunity to fight back against these types of villains in part because of that widespread ownership. And that's the kind now of he, thing that I think. Go ahead. One thing that came to my attention, he had a schizophrenic break this summer and the Army institutionalized yeah. him for two weeks. That didn't lead to anything, Ben. We have a, a minute yeah. left. I, I just don't know how we get people to connect dots. Look, we, we don't have the kind of institutions anymore that people like that ought to be sent to. I think they need to come back. And I think that that's something that, you know, it comes up time and again. But I really hope that someone, you know, has the kind of, uh, you know, foresight to sort of say, we just have a mental health system in America that is not up to the challenge of the level of, of craziness that we have going on in our communities. And, and when people go into these things, they need to be flagged and they need to be paid attention to because they they show the risk signs that can lead directly to the deaths of our fellow Americans. Yeah, if you're committed, as he was by the Army, for two weeks, that ought to be a red flag to local law enforcement about the weapons that you may own at home. I, I just, I think that one, that stunned me this morning to find out. Ben Dominich, editor-at-large at the, um, at the Spectator and Fox News, 
contributor. Thank you, Ben. Follow him on Twitter or the site formerly known as Twitter X at B Dominich and come right back for more of the Hugh Hewitt show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I want to take a break from Israel and from Maine to focus on the United States Congress with Sarah Bedford of the Washington Examiner. Follow her Twitter at Sarah C. Bedford. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I don't know much about Speaker Johnson. I know he's been a guest on the show when he was back at Alliance Defending Freedom years ago, but I don't know him. What is the reaction among, and I, I use this phrase as a term of art, the donor class to Speaker Johnson? Will he raise the money that Speaker McCarthy did? Well, I think the the immediate reaction from just about everybody is relief. First of all, that the mess is over. You know, I think there was so much fatigue that anyone not objectionable who was nominated for what the the fifth speaker after McCarthy uh, was going to have a pretty good shot. That being said, I think that Mike Johnson is seen as as like a least bad option. There there were other people in the ring that made. Uh, the establishment, so to speak, a lot more nervous, obviously. And so far, he's said all the right things. He's hit all the right notes. I do think there is that concern that to to meet the fundraising prowess of a Tom Emmer or a Kevin McCarthy is going to be a tall order. But at least the drama is over and the Republicans can start picking up the pieces. Now, do they really intend to do appropriations via regular order? They, they will need a CR, another one, Right. Uh, it seems that way. I mean, there there seems to be a sticking point with every single piece of 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 the appropriations fight right now. Not to mention that the White House is also, you know, putting pressure on them for the supplemental spending package. So they've got a lot going on, and it's hard to see them getting that done by November fifteenth when they, they they barely have two weeks left to do it at this point. So if they don't get twelve appropriations bills passed into conference and then to back. They have to go to a CR or the government shuts down. Does anyone have you heard anybody wanting to shut the government down in the middle of a war? Well, you know, there's always going to be some of the voices on the right, you know, uh, who 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 say that they don't mind a good government shutdown. What good does the government do? I mean, you have the the handful of Freedom Caucus type members who have never shied away from a shutdown. That being said, I don't think that that's really uh, anyone's really advocating for it at this point, but I mean, just I mean, just look at, for example, the 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 agriculture appropriations bill. There's a big fight brewing over the abortion pill uh, authorization, whether that could be sent in the mail that could derail just that one bill. You have, you know, problems with. Def- I mean, you just have problems with basically every appropriations bill, and it's hard to see those getting worked out in in just a couple of weeks. There was a move to to put in place a 15-month CR that cuts domestic spending by 1% except the Department of Defense. Is that still floating around? I think that there were Republicans who were uh, dissatisfied with the spending caps that were in some of the, the CRs previously. I mean, no one wants to do an omnibus, right? And there are were certain Republicans like Chip Roy who wanted to see spending cuts down to pre-pandemic levels. And that wasn't in the deal that McCarthy had no, negotiated with Joe Biden. That's not something that Democrats are obviously going to support or even some centrist Republicans. So I think there's a push among some to get those spending caps even lower. And that last question, Sarah, the Republican, Mike Johnson was the deputy conference leader under Elise Stefanik. Somebody has to take his place. Do we know who that's going to be yet? You know, I haven't 
seen much on that. I mean, the dust is still sort of settling on uh, who is the speaker, but but obviously this whole process has revealed a lot of ambitious members who would like promotions. And so certainly there's probably a hope to get someone cut from the same conservative cloth into that role. There'd be at least a panic is in that conservative cloth. I, I don't think I can recall when a conference kneecapped its speaker, its its majority leader and its whip in the same three week period. Right. That's pretty self-destructive behavior for Republicans. I mean, the they, they took weeks. out Tom DeLay. They took out Newt Gingrich, but never did the entire top three leadership get taken out or embarrassed or debilitated by a conference before. It's it's one of those moments in congressional history that won't be remembered by many people who aren't in Congress or by people who cover it like you do, Sarah. But it is really unprecedented, I think, that this happened. Sarah C. Bedford on the site known as Twitter, now known as X, follower. She knows what she's doing. She's on top of every story. I ask you as well, follow me the next hour. I've got an encore presentation of a Hillsdale dialogue. Everything Hillsdale is at hillsdale.edu. All of my contributions to the Hillsdale cornucopia of learning are at hughforhillsdale.com. There are 508 Hillsdale dialogues, so I can do this all day long. If there's something relevant, I go back and find it. Cooper Union is the site of Abraham Lincoln, maybe his most important pre-presidency speech. The debates mattered quite a lot, obviously, in 1858, but this is after he did not get the Senate, before he ran for president. He did a speaking tour that began at Cooper Union, and it's a college in New York City that this week was witness to an anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish student rally where Jewish students were sequestered in a library and actually told to go and hide in the attic, which is so tone deaf as to be appalling of and in itself. So I thought I would pull, because Dr. Arn is away today, I would pull the the Cooper Union discussion, which resonated with me, and edit it and play it for you as an encore presentation. During the break, though, go over to hillsdale.edu or visit qforhillsdale.com. 508 Hillsdale Dialogue. Start at the beginning, end at the end. You'll be much better off for having been educated by the Hillsdale faculty and Dr. Arn. I just facilitate those conversations, but boy, they are worth your time. 508 of them, soon to be 509 of them. Stay tuned, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.